Welcome to the Nature of Mind podcast. Our mind is our most valuable asset and most dangerous possession. It can be amazingly creative or terrifyingly destructive. The Nature of Mind project invites you to learn from thinkers in psychology, neuroscience, philosophy and Buddhism. Learn more at natureofmind.net. We hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so I wanted to welcome Ian McGilchrist, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, to at least virtually to uh, the London Buddhist Centre, to the, the main shrine room of the London Buddhist Centre. And uh, I'm going to be talking to him primarily about the second half of this wonderful book, uh, The Master and His Emissary. Um, my friend John of March, who interviewed, uh, has just interviewed uh, Ian, who you'll hopefully have watched, if you haven't watched Jan Avanch's interview with Ian McGilchrist, do uh, look at that. He was really keen that I read this book. Um, when it first came out, I think about 10 years ago, he was saying, you know, you must read this book, you must read this book. I was thinking, first of all, I have no science background. In fact, I have no science foreground or any kind of ground in which to stand. So the idea of a book on brain science of this size, frankly, I thought, you know, this isn't going to be me. Anyway, Yonavarcha encouraged me to read it. Some of my other friends were very much encouraging me to read it. When I finally did read it, I felt that it's the most exciting, profound and fruitful book uh, about art and culture, uh, as well as about much else. Um, Yonavarcha's interview touches on the much else, but I found it, yes, the most exciting, profound and fruitful book on art and culture than I've, that I've read for many, many years. The only book I can remember that had a similar kind of excitement for me in that sense of, um, this is what I've been trying to think, that sense of, um, yes, uh, instinctive, uh, uh, a yes, not a kind of cognitive um, argument, but a yes, was I, I remember reading George Steiner's uh, book, Real Presences, uh, that came out in the early 1990s, just after I was ordained, as it happens. Um, but yes, I feel that this book has the, the same, if not greater, impact of, and it's, it, I think it's very, very fruitful for anyone thinking about culture and anyone uh, thinking about art or poetry or, or literature. So in this uh, discussion, in this conversation, I'm going to, I want to ask you, Ian, about, about that side of the book, that, that half of the book, as it were, uh, the book, like the brain, is divided into into two halves, <laughs> asymmetrical halves. Um, that's about as close to the brain I'm going to get on this. <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether I have one. Anyway, that's another matter. Um, I wanted to start with, you know, I've heard so many of my friends say that it was the, the study of literature that destroyed their love of literature. Um, I've heard this again and again, uh, the, the study of a poem destroyed, destroyed their love of poetry, the, uh, the study of the novel, destroyed their love of the novel. So I wanted to start with that sort of experience. And it, and it's an experience, I think, that was one of the prompts that got you to write The Master and His Emissary. Um, this experience of where the study of a poem can destroy the poem. So I thought we'd start with that, your experience of that. And because I remember, I know you've written a book called um, Against Criticism, which I think is out of print, but it was originally published by Faber. Um, there's a very expensive copy of it online, I noticed. But uh, say, say something about, about that first, about how the, the study of literature can destroy literature. When Ted Hughes was 
reading English at Cambridge, <clears throat> he had a, a dream in which a fox came into his room and it put its bleeding paw on his essay and said, why are you killing us? Mm. And uh, that is a vivid expression of something I felt about the academic study of literature. Um, I didn't want to carry on for the rest of my life operating on my friends. Um, so uh, to try and uh, make it brief, um, I originally intended to read philosophy and theology at, at, at Oxford, and that was uh, where I was going. But in those days, it wasn't an honours degree. And when I was interviewed, um, they said, you can't do uh, philosophy and theology. It's not an honours degree. I mean, extraordinary. But then we're talking about, you know, 1972. And um, so... I, uh, they said, do English, you know, you're good at that. Because I had to do an entrance exam in something and I just did it in English. And I liked it very much. Um, and, and I was very fortunate to have a very good tutor, John Bailey, who is better known to most people as the husband of Iris Murdoch, but is uh, one of the great critics. And um, through his gentle, ironic, humane approach to literature, I really came to love it. Uh, but I realized that um, there was something very odd going on in, in academe all around me, which was that somebody in the past had created something of great beauty, um, taken pains to create this very beautiful object, which would be a poem. And the poem is entirely unique. At least a good poem is. A bad poem might not be so unique, but one of the qualities of a really great poem is it's unique. It can't be replaced by any other experience in the world. Mm. Above all, you can't take the meaning out of it. Uh, and sort of, you know, if you, if you take, um, uh, you know, Hardy's great poem, um, here is the ancient floor, foot-worn and hollowed and thin. Here was the former door where the dead feet walked in. If you translate that, you say, well, Hardy was um, uh, grieving the death of his wife, and he went back to um, a house where they had been before. Well, mm, uh, <laughs> something, all the, all the value of this has gone. And um, so, in, in effect, what, what the person had done was to create something unique that was also implicit, that couldn't be just sort of made, rendered explicit without destroying it. And the third thing was that whatever was said and whatever was done was part of a whole. And when you took a part out of the context, it changed its nature completely. So something that was implicit, that was unique, and that was in context as part of a whole, was ripped out of the context, made explicit, and suddenly became general in a way that ruined its value. So I thought, this is very odd. We're working against literature. And then I wrote the book against criticism because I wanted to make the point that there was something wrong with this. Um, and that, as you say, was published by Faber in 1982. And uh, I think it was probably unceremoniously remaindered after selling a few hundred copies. Um, and as you say, now you can't get one. <laughs> but... Um, what I argued in that book, I took three great literary figures that were um, very important to me, one um, an essayist, one a novelist, and one a poet, and they were um, Sam Johnson, Lawrence Stern, and William Wordsworth, mm -hmm. and showed how each of them, when analysed or looked at in the abstract, 
is just full of all kinds of uh, impossibilities and, and, and imperfections, really. And yet when you actually encounter them as a whole, what looked like imperfections in the analysis turn out to be part of the value of the whole thing. Mm. So um, I then decided, well, this is really a very important philosophical problem, and it boils down to the mind-body question. Mm. We've disembodied something that is an embodied being like me. And in fact, when I read a poem, it works on my body. Uh, it, it works on my breathing, on my pulse, on my blood pressure. It makes my skin, uh, the hairs stand up on, on, on my skin or brings tears to my eyes and so on. So I, I just thought we, we've made things disembodied. And I saw that going on all around me. I thought we're living in a sort of um, cerebralized, disembodied culture in which everything is being turned into a technical abstraction instead of being lived. So I went to all the philosophy seminars, and to cut a long story short, I just felt they, their approach was utterly disembodied. So the way to do it was to get embodied uh, knowledge, and that meant doing medicine. So I went off and trained in medicine and uh, wanted to work, which I then did, in the overlap between neurology and psychiatry, where mind meets uh, brain. That's really that uh, aspect, anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean... One of the things in the second half of, of The Master and the Emissary is, well, this real sort of val- valuing of, of, of the art object, whether it's a poem or a painting or music. Music is clearly a, a great passion for you. Um, at one point you say, I believe art does play an inv- sorry, I, I believe art does play an invaluable role in conveying spiritual meaning. Uh, I believe art does play an invaluable role in conveying spiritual meaning. I mean, for me, this was, as 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 an ordained Buddhist, this was an absolute delight. And this is my experience of works of art, particularly great works of art. But it's very, very unusual for anyone to be saying that now. Uh, Everyone's like, so, uh, that's so yesterday, that's so mid-19th century, that's, you know, we're we're far too clever for that sort of thing now. So, I mean, I'll come on to the, 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 the position we're in now, but... Could you say what you mean by that and how art, you think, plays an invaluable role in the conveying of of spiritual meaning? Well, it was one of the things that brought a a spiritual sense, awakened a spiritual sense in my life very, very vividly uh, in my early teens. some of it was actually religious music and religious poetry, but it seemed to me that even you know, getting to know the poetry of John Clare, who was not a religious writer, um, evoked very much the same sense of an encounter with the natural world that was rich and living. Um, mm. And I think nowadays when people are, for very understandable reasons, which I have uh, written about at some length in this book that I've uh, just finished. Um, People are scared of religion. They think either it's uh, asking them to believe six impossible things before breakfast or that they'll have to, you know, do all sorts of strange things. But in fact, if you ask most people, um, are you religious? They will say no. But if you ask them, do you think there's more to life and the world than is accounted for in materialist science? Almost all of them will say yes. It's very rare that people say, no, that's the sum. So there's something there that is massively important that we're not encountering. And 
when you can't actually embrace a religion, you can find it in um, very much in art, I think. It, uh, by art, of course, I mean music as well as, as, as painting and architecture and literature. Those are the places in which people find it. And if I may say, it's sex. I mean, <laughs> there's an expression, oh, it's just sex. I think I know what is meant by that. But if one has any experience of, of the absolutely earth-shattering experience of a, a sexually loving relationship, it, it, is, it is an encounter with the transcendental, as, as, as it works for So I think in our current irreligious era, these are, the, these are the main ways in which people encounter the other, something beyond their thinking, beyond their normal uh, way of thinking. And I think it's very, very sad that nowadays we think we're so clever. I mean, of course, cleverness is the enemy of wisdom. And it, 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 the trouble is that we think we know it, you know, and it, that's the first sign that you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. I mean, you, you talk a lot, I'll come back perhaps later in our, our conversation, you talk a lot about your wonderful critique of modernism and postmodernism. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're particularly you talk about meaning being ironized away. Um, mm. You know, mm. can you say more, you know, about that? You know, that how have we got to this place where, um, you know, so, like that, that wonderful Hardy poem that you're reading, and I know Wordsworth means a lot to you, and you, you've talked about, yeah. you know, when you read the syntax of Wordsworth, and I, this is the first time I've heard anybody say it, um, um, that you feel it in your body, you know, you, or you read Milton's syntax, and it's sort of chewy, isn't it? You can... Yes. There's this gorgeous sort of uh, flexible mm. tensile sentences that he comes up with. Um, yes. How have we got to this place where we're ironizing away uh, meaning, value, the spiritual in art, the religious, and so on? Gosh, a lovely question and a huge one. Um, well, I think there are a lot of component parts. I mean, one is the, the going out from our lives of every kind of religious observance. So there aren't even little rituals or prayers in daily life that used oh. to sanctify the structure of life. We're estranged from the natural world. Very fast we've become in the West estranged from the natural world <clears throat> until 200 years ago, 99% of humanity lived surrounded by nature. Now it might be less than half. Oh. Uh, and we have dismantled um, society with our cleverness, thinking we can remodel it according to a typical left hemisphere theory of how things work. So the three things that used to give meaning to life, and we now know from very robust extensive evidence that the three things that, that actually contribute to long-term happiness are a relationship with nature, feeling that you have a stable place in society, and um, a relationship with the divine. That these are not just good for mental health, but very good for physical health. I mean, the data is not well known, but it is huge and extensive, and I, I cover it in, in this new book. So that's one thing. Another is we have bought um, the left hemisphere's point of view on the world, and the left hemisphere is not in touch with the body. There are, well, I mean, of course, in a very crude and obvious sense, the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body and receives sensory information from it. So it is in that sense but it tends to take thought and disembody it, abstract from it, whereas the right hemisphere is able to see the sort of embodied individual case. 
the right hemisphere has better connections with the limbic system or profuse connections with the limbic system, which is a part of the brain where cognition and emotion um, come together. And it controls, um, it has better uh, uh, connections, uh, more rich connections with the autonomic nervous system. But anyway, there we go. Um, so we've disembodied ourselves uh, and part of it is that we no longer live in nature because that is in itself a way of becoming disembodied. And the other thing is we've become in love with power. And power is now the only value, uh, it seems to me, that we judge anything by. So if you listen to the news for an hour and look at each element in the news and think what is at stake here, it's that there's a struggle for power here. Um, and all the other values, like beauty and goodness and indeed truthfulness, are not part of the calculus. So the one thing that nobody wants to do is to appear in the one-down position or to appear vulnerable. Now, as in love and as in a good friendship and as in one's relationship with the arts and with God, you need to be not all powerful, all knowing. You need to be vulnerable. You need to empty yourself so that you can receive. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really put me off criticism was the odious way in which people, critics, use the work of art as a way of showing off. Instead of being true to the work of art, yes. and whereby a good critic actually effaces himself or herself so that actually the work of art is revealed. They got between you and the work of art because they had something clever to say about it. Mm. Um, so that was one off-putting thing. And, and, you know, that then comes over into the knowingness of modern art. And the trouble is that when art is knowing in that way, it, it's lost all its power. Its power comes from establishing an imaginative connection that sort of hits you sort of below the... <laughs> below here, the heart in the in the bowels, you know, those that's where a metaphor speaks to you. That's where the richness of this poem or, or, or piece of music or whatever it is is acting on you. And so everybody has to appear more knowing. And if you say something naive, like, you know, well, art is spiritual and it 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 should move, you know, not just have a clever thing to say, then you appear to be naive. Mm. I mean, that's very strong. I, I was, well, I, you know, I, tr I sort of trained as a painter. I was at Goldsmiths College in the 1980s. And in those days, all we ever talked about was Foucault. I, I mean, I've never read Foucault. And actually, I can't remember any one of those days reading him either. But the, the, the whole language was, de <laughs> was deconstruction and that, uh, you know, everyone was deconstructing anything and sort of taking everything apart and showing it to be meaningless and, and valueless. Yeah. But with a kind of smug superiority to what they were taking apart. Um, yeah. Well, there's a sort of um, smugness that comes with feeling like you are a bit cleverer than your interlocutor. Mm. You, poor fool, have been taken in, but I'm clever enough to see more, and therefore I'm not taken in. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it's the case of not knowing what it is you don't know. Mm. And this smugness also applies to certain... Uh, <laughs> public figures in science who want to use science in the same way to tell us that really it's all an illusion. You know, you're deceiving yourself 
and but I know what's going on there. And I compare this rather to the um, somewhere in the book, in well, in the chapter on the Enlightenment, the the um, the pleasure people took in um, sort of unmasking the workings in a theatre uh, that an effect happens, and then people say, "Oh, he's rumbling a." whatever in the background well you know it's that kind of thing uh, it's like i'm clever but of course all the person who says i'm clever is doing is advertising their lack of intelligence i'm afraid <laughs> yes indeed i mean it reminds me talking to you about uh, going back to george steiner's real presence as you quote stein at one point um he, he talks about approaching the work of art with a courtesy um mm. I, I found very striking that you you need to have this kind of courtesy and, and invite them, invite the artist, the poem, the painter, into the city of your mind and give them the, a key to the city of your mind, he said. Um, your, your, your thinking feels very much in tune with that, in a way that you would agree. I, I certainly would. And by the way, I'm, um, I'm very uh, flattered by your comparison uh, to George Steiner because... Uh, which I don't think is valid. He was a, an utterly brilliant, uh, I, perhaps still is, I don't know whether he's still alive, but I, he utterly brilliant, brilliant um, writer, um, a great hero of mine. Mm. But I do think that exactly, he, 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 he uses an expression in relation to one of Fra Angelico's Annunciations. Fra Angelico painted the Annunciation at least four times to my knowledge. Mm. Um, and he has a wonderful passage, which I quote in The Master and His Emissary, um, in which he talks about the sort of <clears throat> the, the, the being in the presence of, of each, the angel and Mary, um, and the something coming into being. The, the enunciation is a kind of unfolding or unveiling of something. And I very much think that that is how we need to encourage a work of art to speak to us. It, it, it's hopeless when we do all the kind of analysis. Um, we want the work of art to have a chance to speak to us. Um, so I, I, would, I would very much think that. I think they're a bit like angels, uh, to go back to the image of the angel in the Annunciation, that they come to us with a message, but we need actually to, as you say, open ourselves to their visit. Mm. I mean, uh, the, the, the similarity I find, you, 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 in your book, in, in your chapter, the, uh, the modern and postmodern worlds, you talk about the emptying out of meaning, um, mm. which is, was, was very much my experience when I, even when I was, at, I mean, this is going to be going on so long, this is even when I was art school in the, early, in the eight, eight, 1980s, this sort of emptying mm. out of meaning, um, one of the things I think you're doing in in this book is trying to fill it back up, <laughs> fill the world back up with meaning uh, again, and using the arts as one of the age-old ways in which human beings have experienced meaning. Um, Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 it's the it's the loss of meaning or the crisis of meaning, as it's often called. Um, that that is so obvious in our world. No, and I think it comes partly from the estrangements that I referred to, the, the, the three great estrangements from things that do give life meaning. I, I, I don't like the expression give life meaning, though, uh, as it stands, because it makes it sound as though we make something up to comfort yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Whereas I don't think it's an invention, I think it's a discovery. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, I, and I also believe that myths and metaphors, which, by the way, although some scientists write as though um, that they're a danger and that they're somehow beyond myths and metaphors, just means they don't understand or recognize their own myths and metaphors. Yeah. It usually means they've got the myth of the machine, um, which is just another myth. I mean, sometimes a useful one. Occasionally, it's vastly overextended. Um, so I do think that you know we 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 um, we we don't, as it were, invent meaning, and we don't invent the myths or metaphors. We discover aspects of the truth through those myths and metaphors, which are always just partial. And a work of art can't is also partial, of course. It can't do more than what it does, but it nonetheless is. Uh, not something, it, it, it isn't, it, what we find there is not just an idle projection, it is actually an encounter. It comes back to this idea of betweenness, that something comes about between you and what you read. Mm. It comes into being again, rather like, as I may have mentioned, the idea of, um, you know, a, a Mozart string quintet coming into being each time it's played. Mm. Yes, indeed. Um... I want, I want to say a little bit more about this, this, this emptying out of meaning. I do, it, it seems to mean very much now the water that so many people are swimming in and are, and are taking as a, a, a reality that, you know, life has no meaning, art is, can be reduced to sort of um, platitudes, really, you know, that Hardy poem, or, you know, people talk about Wordsworth, it's just really nostalgia uh, from his childhood and so on. These, these marvellous passages that, you know, that, that, um, Put your hair on your hair, stand your hair up. Um, you talk about that that you imagine a world, don't you? In in, in the uh, uh, I think in in the um, the master betrayed. You imagine a world in which you say that um, uh, it becomes hard to discern value or meaning in life at all. A sense of nausea or boredom before life would be likely to lead to a craving for novelty and stimulation. I wonder whether you could say a little bit about that. I was very struck by that. Recently, I went to the Tate Modern, and it seemed to be <laughs> anyway um, um, an essay on that on that sentence on uh, a craving for <laughs> stimulation and, and novelty uh, because of a sort of yeah. in, a deep boredom with with things. Yes, there are a number of aspects to that. I mean, one is that boredom is a fairly modern phenomenon. Uh, I discovered that the we, we didn't have a word for it really until the 18th century. Boredom comes in in the 18th century. Um, interestingly, the time of the Enlightenment in which people first felt sort of, as it were, um, objectively observing the world rather than partaking of it. Mm. Um, but I think that as our lives have become less fulfilled through um, embodiment in the in the lived world, um, we do crave some sense that we're alive, and sometimes that is to be shocked or appalled. Uh, patients who um, have lost, who have become over-detached or dissociated from the world, um, which is a you know, phenomenon that uh, happens in certain states and is typical for certain types of personality, um, <clears throat> crave a kind of sense that they are alive, which sometimes leads them to cut or burn themselves um, so that they actually feel something. And um, it seems to me that uh, modern art is a little like that. 
that we feel we've got to it's like plugging us into the mains in some way it's terribly meretricious because it's exactly the opposite of what imagination does i make a distinction between fantasy and the imagination which is not original to me it's one that coleridge made yes um and um the distinction is is very clear fantasy is re situating things you already know in an incongruous way so that you see a new picture whereas imagination is looking at something that you thought you knew <clears throat> and realizing that you're seeing it for the first time mm. so it comes alive for you and wordsworth the great poet of imagination for me and he will sometimes take the most banal object you know a, a rock, <laughs> a, a simple rock or a, a shrub or something, and look at it in such a way that it speaks. Whereas, um, you know, uh, the, the opposite of this is is putting together fantastic images uh, in in an. In, it's the shock of the new. You know, the the, the attempt to, to say something new by 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 moving the pieces around on the table rather than going there may be something else here, let's look away from this table for a minute. Mm. So I, 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 I would say that's what's happening. One of the interesting things is that um, <clears throat> attention span seems to be getting shorter. Mm. Um, attention deficit disorder is more often diagnosed, which might not mean that it is more common, but probably is related to the fact that I believe it is more common. Um, and in that disorder, uh, there is a left over right imbalance in the brain. The left hemisphere with its piecemeal attention, constantly looking for something to get, uh, is crowding out the sustained attention that brings the right hemisphere's world into being, where, where something is grows through attention and becomes deeper so instead we're skittering around on the surface all the time from this to that to that but actually the depth of experience only comes with being able to sustain attention mm. and on that topic just briefly it's interesting that i mean this is um, a, a, a sort of objective observation about the left hemisphere that it doesn't perceive visual depth in the way that the right hemisphere does it doesn't perceive depth in time the way the right hemisphere does, and it doesn't have access to deep emotion in the way that the right hemisphere has. So depth in space, time, and emotion are all dependent on the right hemisphere. And when they're absent, you get a two-dimensional sense of the world, which is composed of instants rather than of long stretches. Uh, and emotions are shallow, superficial, social, but not deep. And, there, and therefore you get boredom. And therefore you get boredom, and there's a vicious circle, because when you're bored, you don't pay long attention. And when you don't pay a long attention to anything, it becomes very boring. Mm. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. I mean, you, you talk about, um, for instance, poetry redeeming the, inauthent the inauthenticity of the familiar, don't you? Uh, redeeming yeah. the inauthenticity of the familiar. I wonder whether you say a little bit more about what you mean Authenticity is one of the one of the key words of the book. Um, what what mm. do you mean by redeem? You know, poetry having a power to redeem the 
inauthenticity of the familiar and and therefore what do we mean by this word authenticity it could be it can be misused can't it as a it, it can and it can be used to mean you know different things i was using it with reference to the way that i think the left hemisphere treats embodied reality which is to schematize it and so if one wanted a, a a sort of very simple image it turns the world into a map of the world and we we begin to operate in the realms of the map not in the realm of the world itself that the map refers to which sustains the map and alone gives it meaning and when you start living only in terms of your theory about reality and your map of reality you lose authentic touch you 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 are cut off as the left hemisphere is more remote from all i can really call the embodied being that is a fully um a fulfilled human life so it's it's be, what i mean by inauthentic is dealing with the dealing with the image of something dealing with the map of something dealing with our idea of something and not engaging experience and using that as um as a guide now of course nowadays it's fashionable to say well experience is what you mean by that and it's very fallible and so on well look if you want certainty then um, you might as well cut your throat because there's none this <laughs> this side of the grave um but it, we disregard all kinds of things that could teach us about the world because we don't think they're certain i mean you know for example in the book i look at science reason intuition and imagination and i think they're all very important each one of them is important mm. but at the moment we only consult one or two of them and mm. um, you can't actually afford to be do doing without any of them imagination is actually part of how we encounter the world makes it what it is and makes our experience what it is if you tried to do without imagination it, it there the would be no world there to encounter mm. I mean, I want to come back in a moment, and I'm aware that time is moving on, but I want to come back to imagination in a moment. I want to come back especially to what, some of the things you say about beauty. Just even what you were saying there about the body, this embodied experience, what I'm noticing is that's getting sort of fetishized. And um, I was very struck in the book that we're, you know, you were talking about our interest with health and uh, physical fitness and isn't it necessarily an expression of us being more embodied, but again, starting to treat the body as a kind of thing that we need to sort of, um, um, I don't know what, anyway, <laughs> but it, you know, I'm, I'm struck by that. I could say a bit more about that, but. Yes, I, I, I mean, we, I think we think of our body in just the way that alienates us from it. Uh, it's more on display in the modern world than ever and yet somehow less important and less powerful <clears throat> and partly we you know it's all over the internet in ways that that are ultimately degrading to our embodied being and um, so what i what i think i say is that we treat our body as though it's a um a rather smart sports car with a good sound system um, but bless him even Descartes 
who after all is so much blamed for thinking of the the spiritual, the soul or whatever as being um, sort of separate from the body. He does say that the soul is not like um, the captain of a ship. It's not like like the seamen in the boat. Um, they are interfused in some way. Now, th that is an important realisation. Mm. And I think Christianity has helped us alien become alienated from the body because uh, too often the body has been seen uh, demonised, really, as the, as the foe of um, the spirit. Whereas I think that it's perfectly right that one should be careful not to become... Um, enslaved <laughs> to aspects of the body but one should have a healthy respect for it as well because it is not separable from many other things how we understand the world morally emotionally its beauty and and all the rest so the, the this business of being somehow disembodied is is a desperate aspect of of the modern world picture i'm very glad to say that in the last 20 years, uh, philosophy has uh, focused on this very, very much more. Um, you know, the, the, the importance of embodiment, that we're not just brains in vats. I mean, even it seems to me that, that the imagination and the body are, the imagination arises from the body, whereas it seems to me that fantasy, I, I really liked you going back to Coleridge with that, uh, with that distinction, because I think that is an absolutely crucial distinction between fantasy and imagination. Fantasy seems to be something more, to, what you would, a, a, a left brain kind of abstracted thing, whereas imagination seems to be wholer, can arise from uh, the body in some way. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think I, I compare fantasy to one of those children's books that um, you can make a new animal. It has three levels in the page and you can open them at different points and you can put together you know, the head of a seal with the body of the camel and the legs of a ghost and that kind of thing. Fantasy is recombining elements, bits that we already know about in some new way, but doesn't really speak of anything that is absolutely beyond the way we normally think. Whereas imagination, as you say, is... I, I, I think it is... I, I know exactly what you mean by saying it's more from the body, but I, I want to not perpetuate the idea that the body is is again distinct um, yes, yes, of course. from the mind and the, and the brain i mean the, the body is full of um information of all kinds um, um hormones and 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 all, all that of course but enormous numbers of neurons i mean there are more neurons in the human gut than they than there are in a brain of a dog. And, it, and a dog's a fairly bright animal. And <laughs> you can be absolutely sure that those nerves are not all just helping you, um, helping um, gut motility, shall I put it that way? <laughs> um, so so the, the, the gut is speaking to us. It literally does. People say, I feel it in my gut, and we know what they mean. In the heart, too. The heart has profuse connections with the brain. You know, when I was in medical school, they were a bit embarrassed because there were <clears throat> not just efferent fibres which go from the brain to the heart and tell it what to do, but there were afferent fibres from the brain going, sorry, from the heart going back to the brain. What were they for? Uh, Probably pain. Well, some of them are pain, but there's a lot more going on. I see, incredible. So let, let me go on to a bit about beauty, because, again, one of the things I, I found so refreshing about the book is not only is the book beautiful in itself as a, 
as an, an experience to read. And, uh, but you talk very much about beauty. Um, it remind, I, I've recently been reading Marilyn Robinson's um, essays, Why We Hear, um, as well as her you know, wonderful um, novels. And she says that beauty is a, a conversation between humankind and reality. And I thought that struck a chord very strongly with some of the things you're writing, that yes, that beauty is a conversation between humankind and reality. I wondered, um, what would you would feel about that? I think beauty is, is something enormously deep. I mean, absolutely foundational. Mm. Uh, it's very much talked about by mathematicians and physicists. Um, that they almost know when they're onto something by the beauty of it. Mm. And there are even cases in which they were guided to something that contradicted what was known at the time because of its beauty. And then perhaps 10 years later, the evidence fell in line with their insight that they'd had earlier when they were guided by beauty. And there are many mathematicians who talk about this um, and philosophers, including you know Bertrand Russell, who's in some ways a rather dry old stick. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he says something along those lines. So I think beauty is an encounter with reality, but not everything that is real is beautiful, of course. Not everything in nature is actually beautiful. No. Um, so it has, it has meaning when we say that something is, it doesn't just mean it's natural or part of reality. It means that it's a very particular part of reality that has something else about it that calls to us, it seems to me. It's the way in which the world speaks to us. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe it's not just something out there that has no connection with us at all. It can't possibly be. We come out of it and, and go back into it. And indeed, you know, the, the image of, of, of humanity as remote from a meaningless cosmos, struggling to make beauty and to make art and to make meaning and to make love, come out of the cosmos is ridiculous because they must be in the cosmos there's no possible other place they can come from mm. you know the cosmos is such that eventually it gave rise to Bach's B minor mass you know that is a fact if ever there was one so it has the potential in it to produce all that beauty all that love all that meaning um so you know, I think it's, it, it is a guide. I wouldn't say that it is just the same as an encounter with reality. It's where reality has something important to say to us and calls us towards it. I think that idea of being drawn towards something, I do touch on it in that book, but I have more to say about it in the new book. Yeah. Because we have an image that we are propelled from behind, that you know, it's cause and effect, things, things push you know, in this inanimate way, we're pushed like dominoes <laughs> by the, the last domino um, <clears throat> or billiard ball. But I don't think it's like that. I think we are drawn towards things as in an electromagnetic field. We, we, mm. we sense something and we move towards it. Mm. I mean, as you're talking about beauty is so mystical, isn't it? Because I remember D.H. Lawrence was trying to sort of convince himself that the dandelion was beautiful, or even more beautiful than a rose. And yet there is something about a rose. You, you, you can't just say, well, let's replace it by a dandelion because it's more down to earth or something. Um, it's, no. it, it's not accessible to those things. No, no, it isn't. I mean, I often say, uh, if you want an example of an ugly bird, um, try the shoe-billed stalk. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, poor thing. It's a natural product, just like the eagle, but I'm afraid it doesn't compare for beauty <laughs> or the hummingbird. So, no, beauty is something very, very, very special. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it's very difficult to explain it in terms of things that are useful or fruitful for us. Mm. Um, you know, the desert is is very beautiful. Mountains are very beautiful. And this is not just a new thing. Mm. You know, 2,000 years ago, the Chinese were saying how beautiful the mountains were. In the 5th century, you know, a Christian... Um, ascetic was talking about the beauty of the desert not just the peace of it or the silence of it but the beauty of the desert so it's not just a modern idea that these places are beautiful but they're not useful what is useful is the lincolnshire lincolnshire fields which are full of cabbages and i don't find them that beautiful <laughs> apologies to listeners in lincolnshire. lincolnshire of course they have a sort of beauty but it's not comparable so it, it isn't about that and also there's such a thing as a beautiful person uh, technically, that is not attractive. And there are people who are not beautiful that are highly attractive, including sexually attractive. So the idea that beauty is just this sort of utilitarian thing that helps you choose a mate is not right. Why does it make a bath challenge? You're, you're saying that scientists have, you know, taught about beauty and how the, that they, they know that they're onto something if it's more beautiful. What I start to feel is that in the literature and the arts, there's less and less talk about that. It actually seems... Oh, be a sort of badge of it being suspicious if we're starting to think it's beautiful. As if beauty is, I don't know, um, some kind of power play in itself, trying to make you feel small or trying to um, uh, promote the values of a particular grouping or of a particular theory or something. Well, how is it that in the arts, beauty has become so at least not talked about or very, you know, ironised or people are suspicious of it? Yes, I, I think I say something like beauty has um, sort of been airbrushed out of the picture like a, a, a politician that's fallen from favour in a tyrannical regime. Um, but I, 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 I think, again, it's to do with that you can't be clever about beauty. You have to shut up and listen and, and, and sort of be there for it. Mm. It doesn't give an opportunity to show off uh, how you've deconstructed it and you can see through it and all the rest. You have to make yourself vulnerable and go, yes, wow, that really is beautiful and I can't say too much about it that will improve it. Mm. So I think it's partly that. Mm. Um, and I think the other interesting thing, I thought very interesting, was your remark, makes one feel small. See, this is this power struggle thing again, about not being vulnerable. We have to be in charge. But the fact is that by making the human in charge, we diminish everything, including humanity. Um, mm. We're at our least impressive when we're constantly trying to organize and control everything. Mm. Uh, not only at our least impressive, but as a, a, our most immoral. Um, and cause more damage when we're trying to control everything. I spent a lot of time talking to patients who said, I just don't feel I'm in control. I said, well, you know, join the club. Um, <laughs> the great thing is to realize that how little you have in control. You can't control when you were born, where you were born, who you were born to. Um, and most of the things about you are determined in ways that you can do very little about. The question is, what do you do with the... You surf the wave that you're on. You don't go, I don't like that wave, go away, because it will just knock you down. You've got to use what you have. Mm -hmm. And it, the art of living is that, not sort of um, 
reading the riot act as it were and saying i'm not having any of it so mm. i think it's partly that and and you know i made a point about the sublime in the book which also um overlaps with religion yes. because people talk about oh you take pleasure then in in sort of being humiliated before god or before the beautiful mountain or whatever it is mm. but it, it's fascinating that it seemed like that because of course you can only see it like that if you feel utterly detached from it you're just this powerless observer but if you realize that actually there is ultimately no other sort of no 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 sundering between you and this mountain of course you are distinct but you're not ultimately separate that mm. you can rejoice in and take pleasure in the beauty of the mountain you can take pleasure and rejoice in the fact that there is a divine cosmos in which you are fortunate enough to play a part even if only a small part that doesn't make you small it gives you joy you know mm. it's it's this it's we've all got to be you know i've got to be a great artist i you know otherwise somebody else is better than i am but not everybody is a great artist very 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 few people are really any good at any of these things but we live in a we're so obsessed with democracy that everybody's got to have a turn as you know andy warhol said mm -hmm. uh, of being famous for five minutes or whatever it's very destructive it's very destructive so I'm, I'm, very, I'm aware of the time but i want to finish with one when it's a rather big question because it's you know, I was very struck by it at the end of your book there. Because, you, you, of course, the big question is, is how do we get out of this impasse that you so wonderfully and so um, masterfully um, explored in your book? And I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm genuinely delighted that you're going to be publishing another book, uh, and possibly three books or two books or however many it be, because I think these are, I mean, and I'm so pleased that we can talk, but I do think these are crucial matters, not just for me as a Buddhist or for you as a doctor, but for us both as persons in a, in a world that, as somebody once said, all the mysteries are still as plump as ever. Um, yeah. I wanted to wonder how do we, you, you talk about three ways out of this situation we're in, where we've separated ourselves from value and meaning, where we've ironized out um, love and so on. You, you, you talk about the body, the soul or spirit and art. And you talk about mm. these as all being vehicles, I think you say, all vehicles of love. Um, yes. Could you say why they're vehicles of love and how, how can we find a way out, which isn't a left... I, I had this horrifying vision of somebody reading your book and creating a, you know, 21 ways out of the left brain, um, you know, with tick box and a little computer thing that you can, you know, and uh, you get little badges at each stage and then... You know, you can see on the right brain activating. I have this horrible nightmare that will create a left brain way out of the into the right brain, which of course will be more of a hall of mirrors that you that you talk about again so eloquently. Um, can you say more about yeah. the, those ways out, and you know, how can we do that well, now? Well, as I say, I do think there are the three ways in which we can encounter what I call the other with a capital O. Um, which doesn't mean that we're cut off from it, but it is something other as in a loving relationship. There are, uh, you know, two people who who, who um, are other than one another and yet combined into the couple. So it, that's really why I say they're vehicles for love. There's a saying which I'm afraid I do often quote, but it's from the 
early 20th century <clears throat> um, French philosopher Louis Lavelle. And he says, la charité est une pure attention à l'existence d'autrui. Love is a pure attention to the existence of the other. Mm. Now in each of these, in, in prayer or meditation, in encountering a work of art, and in using our body to encounter the world, to encounter nature, to encounter our loved ones, we are opening ourselves to the possibility of the enriching encounter with the other. And it's that attended to openness, what I call, I used to call um, a sort of active passivity. I'm not sure if it's a good phrase, but in other words, we actively make ourselves um, vulnerable and open to like, experience. You talk about words and the price of passivity, don't you? Yes, which is why Wordsworth is such a great poet that he's able to be a fool as well. And mm. um, when it comes off, it's wonderful. And when it doesn't, he's a bit foolish. But that's the price he pays for being open. And, you know, Wittgenstein says somewhere, you know, for God's sake, don't try to stop being foolish, you know, because it's actually in those moments that you're able to encounter things. And there's a concept in, in Christianity of God's fools, you know, the people who, and it's in a way in Zen, you know, the idea of, of oh, yeah. understanding something by deliberately, um, you know, absenting oneself from the ordinary way of knowing it. So I think that's what I meant um, by vehicles of love. And it seems to me that life is about love or nothing, really, because, and I don't mean just love for a person, that is a very important part of it. But, you know, it's the foundation of, um, of everything we do in a way it's strange you know the idea of separating life and work and things because i've been lucky in that i've well i've chosen a life in which my work is also something i love when i'm writing when i um uh, not always not not always in a friendly way um there are days when i could wish it far enough but as one can often wish far enough one's relatives and friends but <laughs> but still love them and you know it, it's the it's that meaningful encounter uh, which we're doing everything in our power to stop happening. Ironizing, analyzing, reducing to a handful of nothing. And the, the, the thing is, if you analyze something, you know, you're breaking it up. That's literally what it means. It means freeing up the parts. And then you're left with a whole bunch of stuff and you go, oh, well, nothing here. That's because you've just taken it apart. And it needs to be... It's interesting to have a look at it as parts, but then it must be returned to the whole. Mm. I don't know if you've got time for me to say this, but the, uh, one of the great discoveries of the last few years for me has been the um, Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. And in it, there is a, a myth of creation in the um, Lurianic Kabbalah, uh, which goes back to the 16th century. But it has medieval roots. And in it, this idea of creation is that there is Ein Zof, which is the equivalent of the sort of primal being that causes or is the ground of being, um, God in a way. So he's going to create. What does he do? Stretch out a hand and go, make this, make that. No, not at all. The first act is to withdraw. It's called simsum, and it means drawing in. So God vacates a space, an emptiness, a shunyata, out of which something can arise.
The next thing that happens is that a spark of light comes out of Ainsov and it lands in vessels that have been put into this space. And it's much too big for them and it shatters all the vessels. And little bits of light are embedded in the pieces. That's called Sefarat Hakelim. And then the third, the shattering of the vessels. And then the third phase is called Tikkun Repair. And humanity plays a key role in Tikkun, which is gathering the pieces, with the, the shards, with the pieces of light in them, and making vessels that contain light and are more beautiful than they ever were before. Now, to me, there is... I mean, I could... I could extemporize an hour on on the meaning of that but it's just very much the way the brain works the left hemisphere is receptive and open and it gives a space to receive what's going on it pays that attention that is the ground of love and then our analytic mind gets to work on it goes oh i see that's a bit there and that goes into that box it puts it all in the vessels but the vessels aren't big enough to cope with it they're just they shatter, and then you're left with a heap of nothing. Now, that's the stage at which everything nowadays stops. We go, oh, okay, um, we've broken the universe. Um, but the third phase, Tikkun, is what life is for, you see, in this tradition. It is our role in being here to put the vessels together. And that is what happens when, in, if our brains are functioning properly, what has been analyzed is then reabsorbed into the whole picture, which is now richer for the analysis than it was before, as long as it is once again unified. Mm. Mm. That's a really, really good, wonderful place to uh, finish. Uh, thank you very, very much, Ian. I mean, I can't tell you how much I valued reading it. Um, I think, um, I mean, we, we've already, Jan of Archer was already talking about the value for scientists, for biologists, for, uh, for philosophy. But, you know, anyone seriously engaged, and there's, there is so much to be seriously engaged with with the arts. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a play thing, you know. It's not um, no. a bit of entertainment between the, the real acts of living, which is so easily going to be reduced into a kind of, um, you know, like, like a little circus just to keep you titified before, before you go back to your drudgery of work. It's, it, it's, yeah. it touches on these very, very deep issues, doesn't it? Um, these, these yeah. central issues, that's why people get so hot under the collar about the arts at times. It's because it touches yeah. something essential about being human. Yeah. So I feel that yeah. what you've done in the book is open up a way of seeing that, that I think could, again, be a, a shift so that we can bring back beauty and bring back imagination. And even, who knows, bring back humility um, mm -hmm. in the face of those things. Um, yeah. Yes, it's sorely needed. So thank you very much, Ian. It's really, really wonderful to talk to you. And I, as Jan of Archer said, I really hope that one day you can come here and we can, all of us talk uh, to a live audience, an in-person audience. That, 